This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we have a really interesting show today. You're going to be speaking with the founder of the Palestine Museum in the United States, uh, Mr. Faisal Salah, who is the founder of this museum. It's in Woodbridge, Connecticut, and uh, he has a very compelling story, and uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to hear about it. But afterwards, I'm telling you the 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 kind of emergence of more progressive elements within the Democratic Party is highlighting the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Palestine. Because on the one hand, we're finding out that the U.S. Uh, State Department is going to sanction the Egyptians for, quote, human rights abuses and withhold some of the hundreds of millions of dollars they send to the Egyptians. Yet, they continue to fund the apartheid uh, state of Israel on a regular basis who are committing atrocities, human rights violations, and you know, acts of terror and torture against uh, political Palestinian political prisoners. So you have the squad, AOC, Rashid Tlaib, and others who want to stop shipments of these massive uh, human destroying bombs to the uh, to the Israeli uh, military, and they're getting they're getting pushback. You know, so we're going to be talking about the political kind of divide that's happening now, not not between Democrats and Republicans, Jamal, but within the Democratic Party, between the progressive forces and the forces who are still committed to supporting in, a, in apartheid practice. That's right, Jess. And as you know, U.S. foreign aid has conditions. It's conditional. It to, always does. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not supposed to give foreign aid to countries that violate uh, human rights. That's one of the conditions. You're not supposed to use military aid to bomb children and civilians. That's another condition. And so we'll examine this. And, uh, of course, uh, first we're going to go to our interview with a uh, great person, Faisal Saleh, someone who dedicated his life. I mean, this wasn't his career, really. Right. Uh, right. And And basically established a very important and a very unique museum, the Palestine Museum in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Uh, let's uh, watch the interview. The Palestine Museum in Woodridge, Connecticut was founded in 2018 as a labor of love by Faisal Saleh. Faisal's family of 11 children were made refugees from their ancestral home and extensive fruit orchards in Salama on the outskirts of Jaffa during the 1948 Nakba. Saleh's family fled to Albire in the West Bank, and this is where Faisal grew up until coming to the United States on an academic scholarship and later received his bachelor's from Oberlin, Oberlin followed by an MBA from the University of Connecticut. Joining us on Arab Talk is the visionary and founder, Faisal Saleh. Welcome, Faisal. Thank you, Jamal. Pleased to be with you. So how did you come up with the idea of establishing the Palestine Museum? Uh, what brought you to open an art museum since on the surface it's completely unrelated to your background? 
Well, uh, I uh, was in the U.S. Uh, for such a long time uh, and, and did all my time. I, I spent it working, keeping my nose to the grindstone, like they say. Uh, and uh, after uh, being there like 45 some years, I felt it was time to do something for Palestine. And I uh, kind of looked around to see, you know, what's there to do and what might be interesting. Not, not much really um, uh, caught my attention. Uh, uh, at some point, uh, I came across some people who were trying to start a museum for several years. I joined briefly and then quickly realized, uh, you know, they're, they're not on the right track. And so I struck out on my own in 2017, spent about uh, nine months uh, building the idea of the museum. And uh, nine months later, uh, I opened the Palestine Museum U.S., uh, in April of 2018. So now it's three years from your opening of the museum. Uh, how has the public response been? I mean, one nice touch you have is the videography of visitors talking about their experience. Um, the response has been great. And uh, over the three years, the museum evolved from being uh, a local institution in a small town called Woodbridge outside of New Haven, Connecticut, to being uh, more uh, of a global institution. Uh, thanks to the COVID crisis, uh, we, as long, along with the rest of the world, have discovered the advantage of virtual technology. And uh, the museum was able to capitalize on that quickly and uh, developed a, a great uh, international audience in many countries. Uh, so um, the museum uh, was extremely well received, uh, not just by members of the Palestinian community in the United States, but also by uh, Americans uh, in general. Uh, our audience has been uh, about half uh, of Palestinian uh, origin and the other half uh, uh, non-Palestinian, non-Arab uh, origin. And these uh, and, and those statistics are really great. Uh, uh, they are what we were after. Uh, and we continue to cater to both audiences. Um, the museum is very well known, uh, not just in the United States, but also in many of the countries in Europe and um, and uh, in, in the Middle East and Palestine in particular. Um, this year, we are working on a, a very ambitious uh, art project, which is to create uh, a presence uh, at the Venice Biennale, uh, which is the, the world's greatest art event. Wow, that's but, impressive. Yeah. And... We expect to be there when the Benali opens in April of 2022. So, you know, we, uh, I say we, Palestinians, uh, living in diaspora, uh, carry the, the Nakba with us, that's uh, the catastrophe. I noticed that you have a time since Nakba timer on your website. Uh, I mean, explain to me what's the message behind that time since Nakba? Yeah, first of all, uh, we like to call it the Nakba clock. Uh, like this, you have the doomsday clock, and then there's the <laughs> Nakba clock. And that, the Nakba clock is ticking. When you go on our website, you see it second by second, the seconds are ticking by. Each second, it's another 
slice of time that Palestinians have been deprived of their homeland. And uh, our losses and damages uh, are accumulating on a daily basis. There is a value uh, for what we've lost and, and, and there is a cost for it. Uh, so far, we have been suffering the cost. Uh, there will come a day when we will uh, demand uh, reimbursement for our damages. And the clock is tracking what those damages will be. So, I mean, through your exhibit, do you feel you have enough pieces of that clock? I mean, I, I uh, let me just uh, say that I have not been to the museum. I've studied it through your website. The, the person who told me about your museum when you first opened was my wife. She's from New England, and she's from the Boston. She actually drove with her mother to your museum, you know, when pre-COVID, let's put it this way, when things were open. And, and I'm trying to kind of like, if, if someone would come there, where do you take them on their journey? Um, we take them on a, a variety of stops. And uh, it's not that we present uh, a fully detailed, sequential, chronological history of events, etc. But rather, we show uh, certain images and certain views uh, that are carefully curated, uh, that when they're put all together, uh, they create a very moving image, uh, whether you're a Palestinian or a, or, or a non-Palestinian, and they convey the message that Palestinians have been uh, uh, subject to, subjected uh, to all kinds of injustices, and Palestinians have uh, artists uh, and talented people, just like any other people, uh, and we are human and deserve to be treated as humans, and we should uh, be, be treated like humans. Uh, the message is complex, uh, and it's not delivered directly. Uh, it is delivered through the arts, and uh, we define the arts very broadly. We have identified 13 uh, different types of arts that the Palestinians excel at, and the museum uh, goes to great lengths to feature uh, those different arts. Uh, we recently uh, declared uh, the last week of April as Palestine Art Week, and we have now reserved that on the, on the calendar, uh, and each uh, Palestine Art Week uh, includes seven days of intensive uh, programming about Palestinian arts. And just uh, so people know what I'm talking about, uh, we see the arts not just as paintings and sculptures, uh, but also as photography, as calligraphy, as music, uh, cuisine, uh, dance, debke, embroidery, uh, poetry, uh, literature, novels, uh, you name it. We, we have 13 different forms of that art that we celebrate and where Palestinians uh, excel at. And we want the world to, to know the depth and extent to which Palestinians uh, excel in these arts. So the artists that you feature, I mean, are they, uh, do they live in the United States or you just 
seek out artists from everywhere, from Palestinians in diaspora, in Europe, in the Middle East, or even from Palestine? We have artists from all around the world. Uh, we have artists from the United States, from Europe, uh, from Chile. Uh, we have artists uh, from Palestine. And Palestine, as you know, has different uh, segments uh, uh, from the West Bank, artists from Gaza, artists from the pre-48 Palestine. Uh, we have artists from uh, Jordan, from, from Syria and Damascus, from Lebanon, uh, and, and some other countries. Uh, we make no distinction uh, uh, to the place where Palestinians reside. We reside all over the world. Uh, the entire planet uh, is our, our residence. Uh, as you know, we scattered everywhere in the diaspora. So the residence is not important. Uh, we want to all be seen as Palestinians uh, without any distinctions among us based on uh, our uh, uh, residences. Uh, you know, Palestinians holds dozens and dozens of different kinds of passports. The passports we hold are immaterial. Uh, what's in our heart is Palestine, and that's what we want people to know. Do you face difficulties uh, bringing these uh, artists uh, or, or their work to the United States? Not whatsoever. I, I can bring a piece of art from Gaza in four days. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I can bring uh, a piece of art from Kuwait in two days, from Dubai, from uh, Belgium, from Luxembourg. Uh, we have artists in all those places and we're able to get the art from there. Uh, we, we have not uh, experienced any difficulty. There's one place that's that's kind of a, a bit, uh, takes longer to get it from, which is uh, Damascus and, and, and Beirut, uh, because there are some shipping restrictions on those countries, uh, in which case the artwork gets shipped to somebody in Dubai, and from Dubai we ship it to the United States. What is the most unanticipated thing you have experienced or or learned during this adventure, really? Uh, believe it or not, I didn't realize that there were so many talented Palestinians around. Uh, uh, I knew we have a lot of talented people. I knew we had a lot of artists, but I had no idea how many artists there are and how many filmmakers there are, how many novelists, how many writers. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of thousands uh, you know, uh, it is incredible uh, the amount of talents Palestinians have. And uh, it is time for the world to begin to, uh, to know that talent. Uh, I mean, we have opera singers like you won't believe. Uh, we, we've, we brought in uh, an opera singer, uh, Mariam Tamari, to perform at the French embassy in Washington, D.C., in an incredible performance, she sang in six languages. Uh, and uh, she amazed everybody in the audience. We brought uh, pianists, world-class pianists, uh, uh, to perform uh, in, in multiple locations. Uh, and uh, we have the talent. Uh, we just need to be able to present it to people in a way that capitalizes on the talents and not diminish it by the other extraneous things that some of us often uh, do 
uh, and and try to uh, and end up kind of self defeating the the purpose. Uh, uh, what's really important from in the arts world is to focus on Palestinians as artists, uh, and that is the message we want to get through. Uh, yes, we're Palestinians, uh, but we don't need to carry flags everywhere. Uh, the fact we're Palestinian is is just as powerful. The flag is something in addition, uh, but it's, it's more important for people to see us as Palestinian, as artists, as talented people, because that is the message we are trying uh, to, to deliver to the world. We're not the helpless victims, um, and, and we're not the terrorists. We're, we're not the extremists. We're people just like anybody else, and there's no question about that, and we're out there to show people That's who we are. Would you say that this uh, journey took you uh, to your own uh, self-experience and discovery? Because you've mentioned that you 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 were surprised to find about so many artists and talented people. So did you learn more about your own culture? Of course. Uh, every every day I learn more things. Uh, every day I meet a new a new artist. I, I meet so many people. I can't really remember all the names. I have to write them down. Uh, and I get calls from people and say, "Hi, Faisal, how are you?" And uh, I said, uh, "Please, uh, could you tell me who you are?" <laughs> <laughs> and of course, when you get my age, you know, you you know, memory becomes a. <laughs> becomes a little bit of a factor in, in, in remembering things. However, uh, I enjoy spending hours on the phone with Palestinians in, in different parts of the world talking about Palestine and reminiscing about such and such street in Ramallah and which such a building and where we used to walk around and uh, what stores were nearby and, and kind of going through my a map of of Ramallah in my head and Albire and and remembering all the shopkeepers all, all the stores all the times we've had there the teachers we I had the uh the students who were my classmates and and it just brought all that stuff back and of course it reminded me of my family and my parents and And I, I realize things now in hindsight that I didn't know when I was living there. When I'm living there, I didn't realize the depth of anguish uh, that my parents had and the frustration over, you know, losing their, their land and not being able to, uh, to make a good living uh, and all the challenges of raising 11 children. Um, uh, just to give you uh, an example, in 1967, we were uh, run over by the Israeli army during the 67 war. And after that, you know, we were able to travel back to Palestine, where we from. And of course, I wasn't there. I was born afterwards. But so I went with my parents uh, in a taxi to visit our village. We got out of the taxi. And for two minutes, my parents looked around where our house used to be. Uh, and then they ran back in the taxi and says, let's get out of here, we can't take it. They could not stand being there. Uh, it's just uh, that level of anguish is, is un, unimaginable. 
um, and the level of, of pain that, that our parents suffered without talking about it. They never, they've talked about the good times they had there, but they never talked about the pain that they suffered. Actually, this is a, <clears throat> a very common theme. Uh, I went with my uh, father, actually, to look at the home in, in Jerusalem, the house he grew up, and it, it, it was a very emotional experience, even though the house still exists and, of course, occupied now. But then <clears throat> I know people who uh, in, in the States have resisted going back. Uh, people who came here uh, after the Nakba and they haven't been to Palestine because they said they want to keep their old memories. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel there is an escape when people come to your museum kind of looking at paintings and old photographs and, and things like this? That, that Does that take them back? Uh, are they in a way find the museum as a sanctuary for their for their good memories? Yes, and more so than that. Uh, uh, when they walk into the museum, uh, they they tell us, you have great things in the museum and on the walls, but you could have had just, you know, uh, shreds of burlap on the walls, and we would, have, we would have loved it. He says, you know, this is the only place that's ours. For, for years and years and years, we went to other people's museums. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't have any. And so they feel that they're back to something that belongs to them. It's, it's, it's part of the identity that they, 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 they've been longing for, belonging and having things that belong to us. Uh, and this is one of the new things. And a lot of people come and say, uh, Oh, this is like being in Palestine when they see all these photographs from 1920 and 1930 and 1944 uh, and, and see, uh, you know, our ancestors who were living there, uh, who were resisting the British. And they see, you know, Palestinians injured in demonstrations against the British and lying on the ground. They say it's like being in Palestine today. Have you been to the uh, the Waldorf Hotel in Bethlehem? That's the uh, that the museum that was put together by Bansky. Do you see any? If you've been there, or has have anyone have people mentioned to you that there are similarities between the two? Uh, they haven't mentioned similarities. Uh, I haven't been there because the last time I was in Palestine was in 1999. And I don't think it was there at the time. And I did visit Palestine. I did visit Bethlehem at that time and uh, went over the, in Jerusalem, etc. But I, I really don't know a whole lot about it other than what I read on social media and what I see. Um, but th th there is something different about the Palestine Museum U.S. than any other museum. It, it is it is not run and designed and operated just like any other museum. You know, we have certain approaches. Uh, we we want to uh, try to represent the largest number of Palestinian artists we can. Uh, we look for excellence, uh, but we have a, a bigger mission and a bigger uh, goal to accomplish than most museums do.
Did you face any difficulties? We know when Palestinians put something together to discuss Al Nakba, even a lecture at 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 uh, at the university campus, they face resistance. Did you face any resistance? I, I have I have not I have not encountered any resistance uh we've never had any of our programs censored uh we put on daring programs uh we screened the film janine janine for instance uh which is banned in israel uh we screen a lot of a lot of films about the nakba uh we've screened films uh that were made by the plo in lebanon in the uh, in the late 70s early 80s uh and we we've never had any uh any any trouble. Uh, no, nobody's ever uh, challenged what we're doing or, or tried to stop us. We, uh, we have an exhibit of Gaza children's drawings from the Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009 that for eight years people tried to exhibit it in the U.S. and nobody could because Israel would shut it down every time through their supporters. Uh, the last attempt was at Oakland Children's uh, Museum. Right. Uh, where the exhibit was canceled a week before it opened. Now we we ended up with all those drawings. Uh, they're like hot potatoes, and they've been on exhibit in the museum since the day we opened. Uh, and uh, we, we have not had any uh, any. Uh, uh, we are a museum. Uh, we display art, uh, and uh, you know we uh, we don't get challenged. Uh, we are telling the Palestinian story through the arts, uh, and I have not had any difficulty doing that whatsoever. Well, this is great because, I mean, I've witnessed um, these challenges uh, by the Israel lobby and their supporters in the U.S., and uh, also by uh, revisionist historians, That uh, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to discussing uh, something about Al-Nakba, Al really. Yeah, I think it may have something to do with how we present our material. Uh, like, for instance, uh, we have a mosaic uh, of Razan and Najjar uh, and, and as a memorial for her. We have a huge 15-foot wide uh, memorial for Rachel Corey. Uh, nobody ever said anything about any of those things. And uh, I, I, I'm, look, I, I'm happy to address any challenge of, of the Rachel Corey uh, memorial. Uh, so this is a young lady, an American girl, went to uh, to support Palestinians in Gaza, and the Israeli bulldozers killed her. We have a memorial for her. Anybody has a question about that? Come talk to me. Tell us about the silent auction of uh, Palestinian art in saving lives uh, in Palestine, taking place. I know in in the Bay Area uh, this week and in Orinda. Orinda, yes. Uh, we were uh, approached by a couple of people, asked us if we would uh, par participate and help with that. And we uh, immediately agreed to co-sponsor the event and uh, provide uh, um, a small art exhibit on site there, but a big uh, art show uh, as in the form of a, an, an online virtual auction, uh, which went live um, uh, Sunday night, and it is running right now. Um, and, uh, it, we have artists from all over the place and, uh, there are two types of art that's being offered in the auction, uh, original artwork, uh, 
and also uh, prints and posters, which tend to be of a, of a very affordable price. You know, they start like around $50, they go 100, 200, up to 500. And the, uh, the original artwork obviously starts at more like 1500 $2,000 going up uh, as much as uh, 10,000 or, or more. Uh, but the artwork is excellence, and all that artwork is residing at the Palestine Museum currently. And uh, we have twice as much artwork as we have space for, and we do have about 8,000 square feet of exhibit space at the museum. Uh, it, it, it's not a small place. Uh, so we hope people uh, would be interested in participating in the auction and supporting the cause for which the auction is is dedicated. Uh, uh, I um, was wondering if, uh, I guess people can go to the museum's website and we will have uh, information there. Uh, but they, they can... And, and the website is? PalestineMuseum.us. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll put, we'll, put, we'll put a link on our, uh, our website. But people also should learn about your about the auction and we definitely people should learn more about your museum yeah. going to your website palestine museum dot us dot us well i uh, i wish you the best luck i think uh, i think it's it's a great thing uh, and i want to thank you faisal saleh for coming on arab talk thank you so much great pleasure hope to see you again goodbye well, that's the voice in the face of Faisal uh, Saleh, who is the founder and, you know, um, kind of the person who's breathed life, blood and money into the founding of the Palestine Museum in the United States in Woodbridge, Connecticut. It's it's a compelling story, Jamal, and, you know, brings to light the, the kind of awesome history of artists, of poets, of the artistry of Palestinians, not only in Palestine, but in the diaspora. And now we have a home here in the United States for some of that history. Hopefully it won't get bombed uh, in ways that other of our, uh, of our precious historical uh, artifacts and memories have had to go through in the last 73 years. But this is a great story. You know, the interesting thing uh, that if you go to the website, which is the palestinemuseum.us, which I urge everyone to go there, the first thing that you'll notice is uh, a Nakba clock. Right. And and that's the first thing you turn on. It's like he has his countdown starting from the Nakba. How many years, how many days, how many, how many months, how many days, how many hours? And which I find uh, very unique, but basically he uh, tries to reconstruct really the rich Palestinian history from different sources, be it arts, poetry, music, photography, uh, Palestinians living in diaspora, Palestinians living in Palestine. He gets things from all over, from Gaza, even though you know how difficult it is to get right. things out of Gaza. He gets them right here in the, in the United States. Uh, he's a very busy man, and it's, it's a, it's a but very— But this is a lifelong passion, Jamal. This is not something—this is not his job, but this is his lifelong passion. He's someone who came to the United States like everyone else, uh, got his uh, 
finished his university studies, got his master's degree, built a career, became very successful. And you know what? He's giving it's, back. He's giving back. He this is this is his whole idea, you know. And it's uh, brilliant. And we have to give him a lot of credit. And by the way, you know, if you go to that website, PalestineMuseum.us, there are ways to support the museum, which we encourage our listeners to do. And also, they have a special event, which we talk about it, which is happening in the Bay Area, at Orinda, uh, to be specific. And this will be posted. Details about this event will be de- will be posted on our website, and also we talked about it. So um, I highly recommend supporting the museum, its endeavors, its work. Go online, and hopefully, if you're in New England or in New York or wherever, it's not too difficult to to go to to Wood- Woodbridge, where you and I are kind of far, three thousand miles away. But if you're on the East Coast, it's very accessible. Well, Here's the thing. I've been to Woodbridge. <laughs> so I know Woodbridge, ironically. It's a be- actually, it's a very beautiful suburb, you know, outside of, you know, where Yale University is. It's very pretty, very beautiful, and it's a perfect place. Well, you, you know, know, now you're on your next trip to the East Coast, Jess. And I'm, gonna I'm, go. gonna, I'm, make it a go- I'm making it a goal to go there. Me you too. know, uh, Winifred, my wife, she's been there. That's wow. how I learned about it. And she drove from Boston to go to the museum. Wow. Of course, this was pre-COVID, uh, you know, when yeah. people could go around. And so hopefully when travel becomes easier and, and, and then we'll get to see it. But in the meantime, go to the website. There's a lot exactly. on that website. I mean, yeah, everything it's, is it's done a beautiful now virtually. Hist- and the history that he's documenting is just awesome. And, um, you know, I made that comment in the beginning about I hope it doesn't get, um, you know, bombed or destroyed. It was only half a joke, Jamal, because you and I both know, historically, one of the things that the Israelis have done is to try to erase our history by bombing libraries, museums, documents. They've done that historically. They've tried to, you know, change the names of Arab cities and given them Hebrew names or you know, streets that have Arab names and changing them into Hebrew names. I mean, all this kind of... Well, that's why Faisal preserves this, right? Exactly. That's his mission, really. Right. So we need to give him as much support as possible. We encourage our listeners to go to the website, see the museum, and do what you can to support the Palestine Museum. All right, so uh, you're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. We're moving to our next topic, Jess. I want to ask you a question. Uh, which <laughs> countries are the biggest recipients of U.S. foreign aid? I mean, it's a very rudimentary question. Let's see. I'm going to take a wild, wild guess and say the apartheid state of Israel and Egypt. Yeah, well, there's maybe little, Jordan. There is a little change, yeah. So, so Israel, and this is, and we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about straight uh, U.S. aid. We're not talking okay. about loan guarantees and and okay. all the extras that somehow make it there. And we can only go to uh, the year two nineteen because in, uh, there is always a lag of time of reporting accurate numbers. Like so, for twenty twenty one, you have to use the figures from what is planned for 2020 and the United States gives 43 billion plus or take 
in foreign aids globally. Right. Okay. And so Israel gets about $3.3 billion, Jordan, $1.52 billion, Egypt, $1.53 billion. Okay, and then, so it's it's the Israelis, the Jordanians, then the Egyptians, and then but the next one is far behind, isn't what it? I, what, 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 yeah, what I'm saying, and and that's the billions stop. So the the billions stop here, and then the next one is start getting like half a billion, five uh, four hundred eighty two million, and so forth. But basically, the lion's share out of that budget. 70% of that budget approximately goes to military. It's it's like it's 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 really spent, you know, like for example, you see countries like in 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 Africa just like Zambia and Mozambique, most of the money goes into food, into the environment, into water, whatever. But those countries they really get a, a big chunk in 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 military aid, so the U.S. government has specific rules, as you know, about receiving military aid or as receiving aid in general. That you must be, you must protect human rights, and you must not abuse our military aid in killing civilians. Those are the two major preconditions, Jamal. Um, I mean, there's a third precondition, but those are the two two main conditions and well and maybe the third one that I was going to speak to is that you can't you can't attack imprison or oppress political opponents that should be part of the human rights yeah you know, that's under uh, the human rights umbrella right, right. so but there are that's, two that's something that the united states in most cases takes very seriously yeah so there are two things going on at the same time that's why we're talking about them uh, today one you know, facing pressure on human rights, suppose because the Biden administration, I want to remind everyone, Biden, when he came, he made promises and he said human rights are going to be his number one issue. I mean, this is basically an important goal for the Biden administration. So now the Biden administration is facing pressure to condition foreign aid to Egypt because of, uh, you know, Abdel Fattah Sisi, the Egyptian, uh, you know, president. Uh, there's a widespread criticism over increased uh, restrictions. And this is the newest thing. I mean, we're not even going on the press and freedom of expression. We're not talking about all other human rights abuses, like when how he came to power and what happened after that, and right. and, and putting in jail opponents right. and the death of the former president uh, Morsi in jail. But now, all of a sudden, you get you have all this noise, and all these Congress people and senators uh, criticizing the Biden administration and telling them to impose new conditions on on security aid to Egypt. Uh, that's that's. Uh, you know, that's very important. And, um, you know, because, you know, we're talking, like I said, $1.3 billion in military assistance. This would determine that, that the United States provides Egypt every year. Right. Makes sense? Uh, well, I, I could never understand why they would give Egypt, the Egyptian uh, government and military so much money. I mean, you and I know that Basically, it's lining the pockets of the military-industrial complex in Egypt. 
Abdel Fattah Sisi is the former, you know, head of the Egyptian military. He's a general. And we know that the among the wealthiest people in Egypt, Jamal, are the top military leaders who own a lot of businesses, own a lot of land, and control a lot of not just the military, but the economy of Egypt. So a lot of this money is going into the pockets of the Egyptian military. And for what reason, Jamal? We, you and I know, it's in order to keep the fake peace deal with the Israelis alive. There's... There's really Actually, no you, said, other you said the key word because a lot of people question like uh, foreign aid to Egypt and they don't understand that uh, foreign aid to Egypt, unlike Israel, which kind of like grew into our biggest, uh, you know, we're, we're, yeah. or we are, the United States is Israel's biggest cash cow. Right. But for Egypt, that was part of the condition of the Camp David Agreement. That's Part right. of the Camp David agreement is that you create peace between Israel and, and Egypt, and in return, Egypt receives that aid because also they got rid of the Soviets. So we That's replaced right. the Soviets as their benefactor. Right. So it wasn't like accidental, kind of like, oh, we, we, we have this lobby in the United States, this big Egyptian lobby or this Arab lobby. It was part of this whole Camp David agreement to get rid of the USSR and replace it with basically American influence in, in, in the region. And so they are our second largest, or they've been our second largest recipient for many years. And they'll probably be, they'll, I think there is just an exceptional year for Jordan this year to get more money than Egypt. But in historically, after Israel, Egypt received the, 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 the most money. So, uh, so, yeah, so but anyway. Jamal, let's, but let's keep in mind, I mean, you know, politically, we should unpack this and understand it. Why, why go after the Egyptians now? What is the motivation for these senators and this, these Congress uh, people to kind of take a stand against, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sisi and the Egyptian government? They've been corrupt. They've been, they've had a horrible human rights record. Um, they imprison most of the political opposition in Egypt. They've been cracking down. They have a horrible, you know, uh, public health infrastructure. People are getting COVID, you know, at an excessively high rate. I mean, the income disparities in Egypt are much greater. So, but this has been going on for years and years and years. So why go after CC now? What what well, is this? Well, yeah. here, exactly. Here is the question. Why go after Egypt now when we give Israel a pass on all its uh, human rights every, violations? Every day. Uh, on the killing of children, on the imprisonment of children, of minors, uh, on its siege on, on, on Gaza, on its apartheid after Israel has been certified by Human Rights Watch as an apartheid state. But and, using American money to kill civilians, Jamal, with, uh, with bombs. Uh, well, that's why, that's why we're talking about these two cases, because in this case, Congress is putting a lot of pressure on both uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who, by the way, have promised to put core values at the center of the Biden's foreign men, uh, policy uh, after four years when President Donald Trump often dismissed reports of abuses in other countries. And, and then they mention here, for whatever reason, Sisi and uh, Vladimir Putin. They don't talk anything about Israel. And then meanwhile, Biden, uh, he also said, promised in reference to Sisi, that there will be, and I'm quoting here, no more 
blank checks for Trump's favorite dictator. Oh, wow. What about all these blank checks to what apartheid about, Israel? What yeah. about these blank checks to apartheid Israel? That's, my, that's, that's the question. This is, but this is why your question, Jamal, is so important and why we're having this discussion, because prior to the last few years, there's nobody and nothing in Congress, no counterbalance that would counter this hypocrisy among a Democratic president, you know, a, you know, someone who represents the Democrat Party. Um, there's no counterweight. They would get away with it. They would they would condemn, you know, Egypt and Sisi and give the Israelis a pass. But we now have a different reality on the ground in Congress, Jamal. Maybe not in the Senate, but among congressional representatives, we have really large, significant representation from progressive forces represented by the squad and then, you know, even people beyond the squad and uh, like Cory Bush and some, you know, some others. Um, so the thing is, Jamal, they're, they're questioning. You have these progressive elements now who are saying in Congress, we should not send this money because Israel is killing children and women and civilians with the money that we're paying them. And this is unacceptable. So I think, as we said at the beginning, this is not Democrat versus Republican. This is, you know, this is Democrat on Democrat um, analysis and disagreements. And it's going to get it's going to get very intense, Jamal, when you think. So, about you, so, so, so just to, uh, you know, make this clear, you're talking now about the second case. We yes. talked about the campaign to stop foreign aid to, to Egypt or condition foreign aid to Egypt because of human, uh, human rights. Now, the second campaign, which is basically you're talking about House progressives, uh, which basically they did that before. They're renewing their effort to block bomb deliveries to Israel. Yes. And, and to be clear, these are representatives, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Mark Pocan, who are leading a renewed effort to prohibit the delivery of U.S.-made bombs to Israel. So these uh, three progressive legislators submitted an amendment just to the annual National Defense Authorization Act, which is the NDAA, that would require the Biden administration to hold the export of Boeing-made joint direct attack munitions and small uh, diameter bombs to Israel for a year. The bombs were used, and the reason the, the bombs were used by the Israeli Air Force to strike targets in Gaza during the maze escalation, killing women, children, and civilians. So, yes. so this is a, a more recent, because they've done that last year. But we know, I mean, that's the thing. You see, that's why we're talking about these two, because given, given the overwhelming support and all these Israel surrogates or apex surrogates in Congress, it's unlikely that the amendment, which was, by the way, published this Tuesday on the House uh, Rules Committee's website, yeah. it's unlikely it will make it, make it into the but, final draft of sure, the but NDAA. It's, but, it's, but it's important, Jamal, and that's why we're talking about it, because things are different now. Things have changed. As I said before, it used to be that the Congress, Democrat and Republican, had a blank check that they would just hand over to the Israelis without any pushback from anybody. And for the first time in 
you know, recent history at least. I don't want to say forever because in, in the late 40s and early 50s and, you know, prior to 1960, there was additional pressure put on the Israelis, pretty minimal. But we know that starting in, in, in the 70s, 80s, and especially into the 90s, literally, it looks like a blank check has been handed over to the Israelis with no opposition between Democrats and Republicans where they disagree about everything. So here we have for the first time in recent political history, Jamal, an effort within the Congress to call out the hypocrisy, to call out this fake call for human rights and accountability to get, you know, support and international aid from the United States because the Israelis get the most. Yet you could make the argument, I can make the argument that of all the countries, even comparing, you know, like Putin's Russia and, you know, what's happening in China, Israel is pretty close to the top when it comes to violations of human rights, attacks on civilians, women and children. And yet the blank check, the money keeps flowing from Washington to Tel Aviv. So we're talking about $735 million worth of bombs to Israel. That's These unbelievable. bombs made by, uh, by uh, Boeing. Uh, Boeing, yeah. And, and of course, this is the, you know, it's subject now for, to, of uh, unprecedented, basically, congressional scrutiny. It faced it in, in, in May during Israel's deadly bombing campaign. And as we said, targeting the Gaza Strip, Representative uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Tlaib and Pokan. They introduced this resolution to block the export of Boeing's bombs to Israel. Senator Bernie Sanders also introduced his own version in yep. the Senate. And then Sanders dropped the effort to force a vote on the bomb sale once it became clear that the State Department had already granted an export license. There's a whole game, an export license to Boeing for the sale. So so kind of like the State Department said, well, we don't want to hurt Boeing because they're going to make money. They're getting $735 million and they we've already issued them the export uh, license. So, But the members of Congress express, expressed anger at the time that the State Department granted the export license before giving Congress a chance to weigh in. Exactly. So Israel, this is the thing. Israel gets, Boeing gets issued the, the export license. The, uh, this matter has never been brought up in front of Congress to debate whether whether we, we were going to give an export license to Boeing and uh, whether uh, Congress is going to examine Israel's stand on human rights. And so this is the very first time. You see, this, this and I, I, I tell you one thing, Jess. Yeah. This conversation that we're having... 99.9 of Americans don't know anything about. But they, they should, haven't Jamal. heard anything about it. Yeah, that and there they is, should. That this is happening, that this every year we give a carte blanche to weapon manufacturers and, you know, with the, uh, with the U.S. taxpayers' money for Israel to purchase whatever they need to replace the bombs and the ammunitions they use on Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere. Yeah, Jamal, and that's why I think this this segment that we're doing on it is so important. But I have a suspicion that even if that 99.9% of Americans don't realize what's happening, even if we move the dial to 95% and 5% know about it, it's part of the change that's happening in Congress. Because as congressmen and women get younger, they become more progressive. As they become more progressive, and you and I have seen the data from the Pew Research 
you know, group and other groups who are doing polling on attitudes towards Palestine and the Palestinian issue. And each year, Jamal, more and more Americans become pro-Palestinian. More and more Americans question the the reasoning and the rationale behind supporting such a aggressive, egregious, you know, human rights violator as uh, as apartheid Israel. So, you know, this is a marathon, Jamal. The political changes that are going to happen with uh, apartheid practices that the Israelis engage in and being confronted by these progressive forces in Congress, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you I know, like we're that. Yeah, and we're in the first mile. And when is the last time you heard any, you know, you know, any congressman or woman bring up something like this, Jamal, in the last, you know, decade? This is really, we need to give credit where credit is due. And then there is, of course, Representative McCollum, who, uh, who actually brought something similar right. about also uh, human rights violation and, and the use of uh, U.S. military aid to target children. And that's actually exactly. one of her. That's one of her campaigns. So you so, have an element of progressives in yes. Congress who are speaking against these abuses. Absolutely, Jamal. That's going to keep happening, and uh, we're going to continue to follow this story, Jamal. This is not the end. This is just the beginning of the story. We're in the first mile here of a you know <laughs> twenty-three and a half mile race. So you know this is just the beginning. And more and more progressive people are going to be elected to Congress. And it's going to become, I mean, the idea is to make support of Israel toxic to your ability to get elected or reelected in the Congress and the Senate. I mean, I know that sounds like a crazy idea, but that's going to be the attitude. Why are we funding such a, such a heinous government that gets away with killing uh, women, children, and civilians with our tax dollars. And if you add to it, Jamal, you know, the billions of dollars we've given Israelis when, you know, 20 to 30 million American children go to bed hungry every night, you know, once you factor in that calculation, you know, or don't have adequate health care or, you know, don't have the protections that uh, most other children should have anywhere else in the world, it may give pause to people's unflagging support for these, you know, for these atrocities that the Israelis, you know, continue to commit. You're absolutely right. And uh, lastly, just a quick mention, the now unsuccessful Gavin Newsom recall election uh, <laughs> <laughs> has cost the state of California, because we're talking about taxpayers' money, $300 million. And on that tragic note, with the greatest income inequality of any state in the in the union being in California, our homeless problem, our inability to feed and clothe, you know, hundreds of thousands of children in the in just in California, to spend three hundred million on these um, delusional, you know, recall elections. I mean, if you listen to what some of the recall candidates were talking about. Even before the results came out, Jamal, the lead recall candidate, Larry Elder, saying that there was fraud. This is even before the votes were counted. So well, that's, 
I mean, that's a crazy thing. That's what exactly all this money that's wasted on the military to give foreign aid to, to, to Israel and other states who abuse human rights, the money we waste on a recall election in California, money that can go to build new schools, to feed the, uh, the hungry, to take care of the homeless crisis that we have here. It's unbelievable. Or the fires that we have in California. Do you know how much we could help with you know, fire control with $300 million? It's terrible. So, well, we'll we'll talk a little bit more in our next uh, our next episode on Arab Talk of that, but it's pretty disturbing. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows are right there, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>